What do you know about public relations, Steve Voice Guy? Welcome to the ALT Insider Podcast, dedicated to making you have the most fun possible while living or dreaming about living in Japan. Whether you've been here for years or are just starting to consider it, we've got you covered. And now, your host, broadcasting from somewhere in Japan, James. ALT Insider Podcast, James here. Episode number 082 coming at you right now. Thanks for listening as always. Uh, I appreciated the reviews I've been getting this week. The, star, the stars mean a lot. So if you have a second, iTunes, leave a review. That really means a lot. Thanks for that. Before we get into this episode, which is an interview episode with someone who's doing very interesting things in Japan, another episode about someone doing a job that is not teaching English. I think it's a very interesting story. Before we get to that, let's get to the site news. Um, if you are a jet hopeful still living in your home country wanting to join the jet program and listening to this episode live on in uh october november early november october november i was counting the months uh the application application period is closing if I, if you this is news to you then you probably aren't a very so how can i say this nicely you aren't a great candidate for the jet program because you should be already prepared for the, the application closing period but i'm just letting you know if you need some last minute help with your resume i mean not your resume with your statement of purpose with the application alt insider resume review.com is there for you uh, as for other stuff on the site the so you want to work in japan series of articles has come to a close um so that was a series of five articles all about kind of i wanted to be a primer for like if you want to work in japan you just don't know even where to start there it goes there was five articles about you know your options how to find job how to apply how to make your resume cool how to be an awesome interview in the last episode the last episode the last i guess you can call it episode the last episode article episode went live this monday which is all about how to prepare for your life in japan so if you are interested in that kind of stuff go check it out now but as for this week's interview I interviewed Donnie, who works in PR, and he works in social media stuff, growth hacking, things like that. So it's really interesting. His path in Japan is another unique one, as they always are. And he shares a lot of good stuff about if, you know, if you want to get in this field, there's a lot of cool things you can learn from how he did it. You know, he helps, he tells you what the job is like. We talk a lot about the ins and outs of the job this time, which I think is pretty, was pretty interesting. You know, what he does on a day-to-day basis, what his job entails. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, stick around, give it a listen. And as always, if you have any questions, hit the comments, talk to me on Twitter, James, I mean, not James, jamesaltinsider.com is my email. Or if you want to be faster, answer, Twitter is better. Uh, ALTinsiderFY is where you want to go there. So as usual, the, the um, all the links and stuff I mentioned this episode will be at altinsider.com forward slash podcast 84. But without further ado, let's get it. Donnie, he's in PR, he's in social media stuff, he is doing some cool things in Japan. So let's get to the interview right now. I'm going to stop uh, vamping here. This is Donnie. Please enjoy the interview. Today, guys, I have a very special guest. His name is Donnie. He's doing some very cool things in Japan. How are you doing today, Donnie? Hey guys, thanks for having me on the show. I'm doing great. So Donnie, let's get everyone as excited as I am. How, what are you doing exactly in Japan for an income? Uh, well, lately I, what I do is a lot of social media marketing. I do some growth hacking, but my main start was with PR and uh, I'm doing publicity with a lot of uh, you know Japanese publications here in Japan. Oh, there you go. So that's you know very different than teaching English in Japan. Teaching uh, you teaching as an Aikawa teacher, teaching as an Aikawa teacher, and some people might be interested in that career. So I want to get into kind of deeper how you got into that career. But first, let's start back at the beginning. Back, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was actually, but what kind of got you interested, and what kind of avenue did you take to get to Japan in the first place? Uh, I hate this question. I actually have a really unique story. So basically, when I was a kid, around seven or eight, I was 
living with my dad in Kansai. Um, we lived in Shiga Prefecture. So he was doing research for the U.S. government, specifically looking at office cultures and ways that we could maximize the uh, kind of American workflow. Uh, so he was doing a lot of investigative research on Japanese companies and um, what we could learn from them. So I was with him in Kansai basically until the age of 15, from about like seven or eight or something like that. So I want to know about like, you know, since you were kind of, I know how it is now as being a foreigner in Japan, you were a foreigner in Japan in your high school years. Uh, no, actually before, up to high school. I was up to high school, eight. okay. Yeah. And then I had the choice to either go back to the States or stay in Japan. And um, basically my dad made the choice to go back home. So so you were the 100% foreigner in a, in, a, in a Japanese elementary school and stuff then? I was in an international school. In oh, Kyoto. international school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So how was your kind of experience there? Were you kind of, did you love Japan at that time or was it kind of tough living not in your home country? What was it like for you? You know, actually my, you know, outside of those really early memories sometimes remain, my first memories are really in Japan. So I don't really, I never had that. It was kind of like a fish being in water. I never thought about it. It was just so normal to me. Okay. So Japan is kind of like your, your, was your home, man. Yeah. Okay. So like if you, if let's say, here's, here's a topical question. If you go to the Olympic, if you were in the Olympics in 2020, what country would you play for? Probably end up being Japan. It's really my home. I mean, I know it inside and out, both the good and the bad. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of past the welcome phase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, that was a stupid question anyway. So, okay. So you decide to head back to America in the end. Yeah. So my dad made the kind of the call, basically, um, I, my international program only went up to the end of middle, middle school. So I had to either enter a normal Japanese high school or head back home. And so basically his research was coming to a close. So we decided to call it there and head back so I could go and get an American education, um, because coming from a Japanese high school, it'd be a lot harder to get into any sort of like elite university like Harvard or anything like that. So uh, he thought it'd be better to head back, go to Boston, um, where we had we still had a house the entire time, and then you know go from there. Okay, so kind of quickly, but I mean, so how was it? What was that like when you got back to America? Was it like okay, this is it was this is much easier than Japan? This is much more fun than Japan? Was it like you know, wow, I love this. I'm getting fat because I'm eating so much. I don't know, Five Guys hamburgers or whatever. What was it like for you? <laughs> uh, uh, culture shock. So I was super polite in in inner city Boston school. It was still one of like the Boston has two exam schools that are quite um, elite, but still it was a public school. So I was coming from basically. Um, uh, super rich ambassador level kind of um, school run by Jesuits to an inner city Boston school um, with <laughs> okay. with a background in Japanese. So I was like, "Excuse me, could you can I borrow a pen, please, sir, kind sir?" Kind of thing. And people just like, "Shut up, white boy!" So it was it was a total culture shock for me. <laughs> Okay, so that sounds could be like it could be traumatic. I don't know. So, Maybe a little bit. But you made it out of there. You got you you, you made it through there. And uh, did you, so did you end up going to college in America or back in Japan or what happened after? Yeah, that? so I actually I um, basically went to an American university that had a really good study abroad program. Um, my goal was originally to you know do two years there, do a third year abroad in Japan, then finish up my degree. Um, but what ended up happening is during that year abroad in Japan, I just decided that this was, I felt so much more comfortable here than back in the States. And I just stuck with it. So I transferred out, I transferred into Temple University and finished my undergrad there. From there, I went on into basically all the way up to almost getting a PhD at Sophia University, um, looking at uh, deviant youth psychology. So basically, I was a social psychologist by practice. Okay, so you, you kind of, you know, you got, got went to America for a few years and got enough of it, kind of, and said, okay, I want to live in Japan. Japan's where I want to be. So, exactly. Call. 
Okay, so then, you know, after college, you, you know, had, I guess, how did you get exactly into the field you went in, decided to go into? Well, it's actually a bit of an interesting story. So as I just kind of hinted at, I was doing PhD research. Um, I had done most of my field work at this point. I had probably a year to a, uh, two years left to write the dissertation, do the defense and everything. And I was very much set on being a researcher and academic and everything. Um, and then, unfortunately, my, my dad came down with really bad uh, pancreatic cancer. So he had about half a year left. For, and um, I decided to you know, just put the research on hold went back to the States and uh, spent the last kind of half a year of his life with him. Okay. Um, sad story, I know, but, you know, it happens when, when people get older. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I came back, what I found out was that my um, Ministry of Education scholarship that had been supporting me was no longer um, valid because I had left. Uh, okay. So, so I had to go reapply for it, and that would have taken another year. So I said, you know, kind of like screw it, there's no jobs right now in academia anyway. I'm going to basically be in the middle of the countryside in Japan teaching at some small university, and they're probably going to make me teach English or something like that um, anyway. So I decided to start looking for jobs. And let's just say to make it clear, so you, you since you live in Japan for a long time, I know that doesn't automatically mean you speak Japanese perfectly, but since you went through the school system, and stuff, pretty, you were pr- probably fluent in Japanese at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably about the equivalent of a 14-year-old kid. Okay. So, you know, there's, there's more complicated words or like economic words that I, I sometimes uh, struggle to grasp, but, you know, I, I can get by pretty easily. Okay. So, and so when you went to apply for jobs, it wasn't like, oh, here's a foreigner applying for a job. It's just like, okay, here's, here's a pretty much a, nas- a Japanese person applying for the job. They treated you in the same manner, I guess. Yeah. Now, here's a little interesting thing about the job hunting process in Japan. As you may be aware, um, Japanese companies tend to hire cohorts right out of um, a four-year university. So basically, they're looking to hire 22-year-olds. Yeah. What they're not looking to hire is people who almost have a PhD. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. I learned this the hard way. <laughs> yeah, so having too, much, having too much education or being kind of too overqualified is negative because some companies feel, you know, they can get you to the lowest level possible, pay you the lowest amount, and kind of mold you into the kind of employee they're looking for, you know? Yeah, exactly. They're not looking for anyone with a skill set. They're looking for someone they can just tell what to do and pass menial tasks to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's it doesn't sound like a fun situation. But somehow you, you so how, how are you going about your job search? Actually, was it just, you know, like everyone else online, finding a job, sending your resume over? Or how did you how did you handle it? Uh, all of the above. <laughs> Ask yeah. everyone I knew, look online. Um, at this point, I, I had basically, you know, I've had I had some part time work here and there during my um, academic studies, but I had the, the administrative education scholarship, which is basically enough to live on if you're a poor student. Um, so I was set there and then I, I, you know, so set on this academic path that I had no idea how to even enter the, the working world. So, uh, I was a quintessential academic, like fossilized in my little ivory tower. Okay. So then, so then, you know, you have to, you eventually you found something and that, ha- that was in the field of? Actually, um, this is pretty relevant to what you're doing, but, um, I, I basically, because my student visa was running out and I wasn't going to be able to renew it without paying tuition, which I didn't have the money for at that time because my scholarship was gone, I had to find a job like ASAP. So I took an actually a teaching job for about a half a year. Okay. So was that like as a business or is it in public schools or was it what kind it of was, was It was some Eikaiwa in Saitama Prefecture. What was that kind of experience like for you, you know, since you were kind of, you've been through college in Japan, you've, you've obviously qualified, you could teach probably university level 
you know, cause you can use Japanese too, but yeah. you have to do an Eikai. What was that experience like for you? Um, honestly, not so good. I was, <laughs> okay. cha- I was chafing from day one. Okay. Um, because a lot of me was a lot of a big part of me was very disappointed with the fact that I had to do it. Yeah. Um, not that necessarily it, it's bad, but you know, I, I had never, cons- I, I didn't need to go and do almost a PhD for this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can understand. Some people have that feeling when you, you know, sometimes you have to take a Kaiwa jobs to like kind of, let's say, bridge a gap between other employment and stuff. You know, sometimes it feels like a step down, but I don't think it should, but it does. It happens. Yeah, it does. I mean, for the listeners out there, basically there's kind of three quintessential jobs in Japan. You're either like in finance, you're in IT, or you're an English teacher. Um, Anything outside of those three tends to be quite rare and comes about from networking, not so much, um, you know, just looking for jobs online. Yeah, exactly. You can and you can see from the people that I've interviewed in this kind of series of people not teaching English in Japan, they usually fall in those two kind of categories in, and and those three categories. So, so you ended up, you know, you did uh, you did some teaching, and then you know to kind of I guess bridge the gap of income, and what happened after that. So basically, the entire I, I was just using that to support my lifestyle, um, and by support my lifestyle, I mean working eight hours a day, coming home and working on an internet startup. Because um, <laughs> I, I, I was at this point, I was very much trying to you know get something going, a la Tim Ferriss style, um, you know, an online business or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a background in doing some SEO work from uh, you know freelance work I had done in, in university, as well as doing stuff for. Um, music and I, I I used to be a DJ and producer I, I occasionally do so now still too but um it, it's you know it, it, the scene's so cluttered and I, it's not my um a game so to speak so um you know I, I learned I had some skill sets from there that I was trying to transition into an internet business um and that's kind of when I ended up stumbling across my current job. Yeah, so let's get into it. Hold on, we'll just pause pause the the career for a second here. So I want to talk about the DJ thing for a second because I always I always wanted to ask someone that's a real DJ. Well, sure. you know, so for me, um, I, like I, I I was in high school, I was in a stupid band, you know. Yeah, we're gonna we have good songs, whatever. We're gonna be famous, but as a DJ, as, I mean, as a band, I can see the kind of trajectory, right? You write good songs, you network, have awesome, you know. You meet other bands, play shows, you get famous, you know. But if you're a DJ, since you're not running your own songs, what's kind of the way to get bigger as a DJ, you know? How do you get your name out there as a DJ for any future DJ out there? I mean, uh, specifically for Japan, it's about teaming up with a big organizer. Um, one of the things you'll be surprised about, though, is DJs in Japan just don't get paid. Uh, okay. They get paid kickbacks usually um, from the number of friends that they could bring to a party. So if you bring, like, 50 friends, you might walk away with... Uh, you know, maybe 10,000 yen, which is the equivalent of like 100 US dollars, but it's nothing to live on. It, it, you actually end up losing money when you consider it transportation and alcohol. <laughs> yeah. So it's not a very good uh, business plan. Okay, so um, give up on that. <laughs> the only way to really get big is to make a song that's a pretty hit success. So, but even then, um, for example, I have a friend in Tokyo who's, you know, trying to become a. He's quite actually famous. He's had a lot of, you know, Beatport. I don't know if you're familiar with Beatport. It's basically a place to get um, dance music. Um, but he's had a lot of releases that have been quite successful there. But, you know, he still has to work a full-time job. So, uh, okay. So it's unless, long, yeah. unless you're like Skrillex level, um, it's very <laughs> hard. The, the top 1% takes the way over 90% of the market share in terms of um, revenue. Yeah, that's so, how it goes with kind of music in general these days, huh? 
yeah. If, okay. you, if you can't compete on that level, it's not even worth trying. And I know it wasn't my skill set. It was something I did as a hobby. I liked it, but it was never something that I fit, felt that could support me or I was willing to put in the work for. <laughs> yeah, okay. So let's go back to, let's go jump back on the career train. So you're working as an internet startup, internet business, you know, Tim Ferriss style. That's what we have going on here at AltoInsider.com. Still working on that. So, you know, you, you, that, that was still going on. And then you found kind of employment to, you know, Get, give you income, I guess. In the meantime. Yeah, well, actually, what happened was um, there was a guy who I had known from the nightlife scene who was a close kind of friend and mentor of mine. Um, and he was working at where I am right now um, at Kyoto PR. And he had, uh, there was basically a spot open, the token gaijin English checker rewriter. And he said, look, it's not anything glorious, but. Um, it's better than what you're doing. I think at least for your goals, why don't you take it? Um, it you, you know, there's a lot you can uh, gain from having a big corporation behind you um, to kind of back you rather than trying to, you know, piece together an income from some scrappy little internet startup. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So like you kind of got in, in this, this is the way into the company was, you know, checking and editing the English files. I mean, the kind of translation files, all right? Yeah, except that never ended up happening. Um, <laughs> yeah. So basically what happened was I was interviewing for that position um, and they had, you know, just like a English test. It was basically rewrite this terrible English. So I was sitting there, you know, plugging away, rewriting this Tanaka-san's terrible English. Yeah, I've done that, um, you know, probably a thousand times. <laughs> yeah. Um, and all of a sudden the door flies open and there's a loud crash and I'm like, oh God, what happened? Did, did I do something wrong? And in stomps this little furious little Japanese lady. Um, and, you know, she screams at me in Japanese, like, can you, like, you speak Japanese, right? I'm like, I'm thinking in my head, who is this? What's going on? <laughs> I'm in the middle, like literally, I'm in the middle of an interview plus this rewrite test and then now this lady bursts in and starts screaming at me. I'm like, what is going on? Did I... It, did I break some rule or something? Yeah. Um, so what ends up happening is she thrusts a Shangri-La Hotels and Resorts press release in my face. And it's like, translate this. Okay. Now I'm like, uh, what's going on? I still have no idea who this lady is. She doesn't even say her name or anything. Um, and, uh, that's how I met my current team leader. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so she, you know, you took, obviously that was pretty shocking. You know, I would be wondering like, is this part of the interview or what? You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Am I supposed to, how am I supposed to handle this? But all right. So you get that, you know, you get that thing to the PR press release. You translate that. And obviously you do a good enough job for her to say, Hey, let's bring this guy on as a real team member. Yeah. So now the backstory of this is basically she is um, on one of the account teams here at Kyoto PR, which means she's, she handles client work. Um, and, our team specifically had a ton of international clients, almost 90% international clients, which means that English is a premium. So a lot of times they don't have a local office or all the reporting needs to be done in English and everything. And uh, outside of her and one other out of a team of five, no one spoke English. Um, okay. So that, that was a big problem, which meant that they were um, kind of abusing, not abusing, they were overusing the... Uh, international support division which is what the guy who originally i had been interviewing with he's the head of that division um so he there's him and then one guy under him who uh is in charge of the english rewriting uh so basically i was applying for that english rewriting job and then um he recommended me to my current boss saying that this guy would be perfect for your team um you need to stop relying on me so much so that's how i ended up getting on being basically the first foreigner ever to be on one of the account teams at Kyoto PR. There you go. That sounds pretty good. So you're still in that current position right now. 
Yeah, I am. Um, so I originally I had been brought on just basically to be language support, um, but I've been growing my skill sets uh, in social media and things like growth hacking and everything. So now a lot of what I do is less so checking English um, because basically that's something you can have anyone, any native speaker do uh, and have them do a decent job. What I do a lot now is uh, kind of high-level strategy and um, kind of uh, marketing entry plans for uh, um, multinationals. So, for example, we just launched um, Spotify uh, to the Japan market. So there was a lot of you know strategy going in there. What's their brand message for the Japanese consumer? What are the differences for Japan between um, uh, you know what what are the unique circumstances of Japan that differentiate it from other markets? So, for example, people have a ninety minute commute on a train. Yeah, yeah. So what's the kind of different than you know someone in Idaho or so whatever? Yeah, exactly. So you know, for example, where where the Idaho guy might be much more into something like uh, Spotify Connect, where he can connect his Spotify account to his via Bluetooth to his car. Here, it's much more about the mobile experience and what you're what you're hearing on the app or on the train. Yeah, uh, that sounds pretty interesting. I want to definitely dig deeper into that. But uh, so let's let's start unpacking this with uh, sure. what's kind of your what's kind of normal day like. I know it's I know it probably varies widely. What's a normal day like for you? Let's talk about what time do you get to work? What time do you usually finish? Do you have those crazy overtime hours? How does it work for you normally? Um, so officially, our day starts at nine thirty. Um, but my team. Because my team leader was abroad for basically ten years, there's a lot more flex about it. I, <laughs> I, I shouldn't be saying this, but because officially we're supposed to be there at nine thirty, but it, you know if you come in later, she's like, just say you had a meeting. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. typical with any Japanese company, as long as it has the hunkos on it, the the the, the stamps, yeah, yeah. basically the equivalent of a signature. Uh, for those who don't speak Japanese, it's basically a stamp that is the equivalent of your signature. Um, that if it's on the paper, basically the authorities will okay anything. Yeah, it's supposed um, to be so, of importance, but it's not. So, so she's you know she'll honko anything for me. Um, okay. Anyone so. else who's producing, um, but you know the, the ones who aren't producing high res- high results, she's a little bit more strict on. So you know officially we start at nine thirty, we end at five thirty. You know neither of those times ever uh, aren't as so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have a lot of overtime and stuff, or. Um. Not necessarily out of work volume. It's much more so uh, waiting for a lot of things. So, for example, if we're waiting for a reply from a publication and they don't get back to us till 7, well, after 7, that mail has to be sent to the client um, informing them of whatever the, that media informed us of. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of waiting, um, but also it's not something that really you can dictate hard hours on. Okay, so but still, so... It's not like you like are spending all night there doing something. You're kind of it's about kind of the schedules of other people working with your clients, stuff like that. Yeah, kind of. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of paperwork occasionally, but um, I'm quite fast at a computer, I, so I can get what I need to get done very quickly. Okay, and um, I want to talk about. You also said you were kind of in charge of kind of the social media stuff, things like that, like uh, you know, the growth hacking and stuff like that. Yeah. So is that kind of would you say you're kind of the social media manager or do you just a part of that? Do you, are you doing it for Kyoto PR or are you doing it for your clients? Which one kind of, which um, angle are you taking that from? So I do uh, basically client content management and creation. Um, so Kyoto is basically a very old PR company. Um, so they're very much oriented towards print media and TV um, with a lesser focus on web media. Um, for the listeners out there, basically print media is still very much the dominant media here. Um, it's much more trusted than anything online. 
So for there's a number of circumstances of why this is, and I won't get into them now because it's too complicated, but basically print media is what dominates the scene here. Yep. So we still can kind of survive on our media connections to, for example, Nikkei Shinbun, which is the most um, powerful economic newspaper in the entire world. Mm, so it's, you know, it's not as uh, social media and stuff like that in Kyoto PR is not that big of a deal, but maybe you're trying to exactly. change that. Yeah. Well, basically, so I, I developed the skill set on my own and then just started selling it to clients with, um, without really permission. And then people are like, Oh, they're paying for this. We should just let him do it. They can't really, <laughs> they can't really even follow what I'm doing. So, you know, oh, okay. I, I talk about things like Facebook dark posts and, the, and their eyes glaze over. Oh yeah. It's like, okay, we're done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that's kind of, um, that, that's, a, I know that's for a lot of people, that's a full-time job right there, you know, just being a social media manager kind of guy. So do you kind of sit there? Okay. I, how many posts do I want to do today? What kind of, what am I going to put on the, what kind of content I'm going to push out that day? Is that, is that how deep you get? Or are you just kind of the kind of campaign manager for that? Um, yeah, I get pretty deep, but I mean, the number of posts is usually set on the client fee. So for example, if a client's paying say what's the equivalent of 3000, um, a month, I might put out four to five posts per week. Um, of course, you know, that's flex, but that's kind of the average and the goal for that week. If there's something like Halloween coming up, I'll, of course, put out something Halloween-related that's addition to my normal kind of uh, content spiel. But Okay, so let's 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 say, um, let's help people out there that's okay. I want to have more Twitter followers. So what's someone, what's a, from your professional perspective, what's a way to, what's the best way to get Twitter followers today in 2016? Um, so I think, trying to get Twitter followers is actually not so much a good goal. The power of Twitter is actually engaging one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so for example, I, I've actually been able to leverage Twitter to win accounts. And the way I've done this is by actually engaging with whoever I'm pitching to prior to sending in our, our proposal. So when you say engaging, that means like sending them a tweet, like, you know, what kind of tweet do you send to start that engagement? So for example, say, just take, for example, there's a five-star resort in Singapore and the uh, CMO, the chief marketing officer of that company tweets something about um, tourists or something, noisy tourists. Maybe I reply to his tweet and say like, you know, Japanese tourists are really valued globally because um, they're very well behaved and they spend a lot of money. So, you know, I, I add to the, the kind of conversation, not in a way that's like sucking up to him or any anything like that, but, uh, you know, engage with him. And then that puts me on his radar much more so than anyone else who's just kind of a nameless face. Okay. And then, so you might, do you do that just one time? You might do it a couple of times and then you bring your pitch from your company to them or? How does I, that work? It depends on, depends entirely. Um, sometimes I don't even do it, but basically what I'm trying to highlight is that it doesn't matter how many Twitter followers you have. And the reason for that is, is because Twitter is too noisy. Um, of course, you know that you do need a certain amount um, for kind of like your, your everyday stuff. But viewing Twitter as just a way to um, broadcast to the world, I think, is, is the wrong way to look at it. Okay, nice. That's a good. I think that's a good to think about. And also, let's talk about. Um, so, how about are you getting to the the newest kind of social media thing that businesses are using is Snapchat? So, have you got into that world at all, or? Yeah, so I'm a huge proponent of Snapchat, but I think that it's gotten it's not. If you had if we'd done this interview maybe half a year ago, I would have a very different response. But I'm very skeptical that it's going to take off here now. And the reason for that is is that um, well, one, um, Facebook launched Instagram Stories, and Instagram is already an established platform here, especially among the young female market. Um, so that's basically the same thing as Snapchat, just built in, into Instagram. It's not as good of a platform, but it's definitely um, 
easier to get your stuff viewed by more people there. Yeah, exactly. I think that was just Instagram's move to say, how can we do what Snapchat is doing? This is how we're going to do it. And I think it works. It's so seamlessly. It works so seamlessly with Instagram as it is. I think it's a really good idea. Yeah, even though the the product isn't as good as Snapchat, um, they basically win on the reach reach kind of uh, battlefront. That they are, yeah, that they already have, yeah. So um, let's get into the Spotify thing. Yeah, I know I was, I was talking to you on Twitter. That's how I got this interview with Tony was I reached out to him on Twitter because he was, he was talking about some Spotify stuff. And uh, so that was kind of a large project, you said. Um, oh what kind of, yeah, so like, is that how, let's talk about the kind of timeline. How, when did they, when did you start the project and when did it, did, to the final release, which was what, two weeks ago now or? Yeah, so basically we've been working with them for about half a year and a lot of that was coming up with um strategy, messaging, FAQs, um, and then also planning, you know, the press conference and everything. Uh, so we had a press conference that had, uh, what, 140-something journalists um, from over 100 different media, and the result was extraordinary. Wow, okay, That's, that sounds pretty good. So, you know, let's get a little bit deeper. So did you, like, um, you know, Spotify has a message, in America, in Europe, whatever they are, you change that message to be perfect for the Japanese audience in your opinion, right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the, this, the discussion started with how do we differentiate ourselves from CDs? Because I, anyone who's been here has seen Tower Records, but for those of you who haven't yet ventured to Japan, the CD media is very much the way that people spend on music. Yeah, alive and well. Yeah, exactly. Um, this Tower Records best businesses in Japan probably. It's so crazy. I don't know how, but yes. And it, well, the thing is, is CDs at thirty dollars a piece. For, first of all, um, so there's old, huge margins there, and second of all, you have Uber fans who buy upwards of a hundred because oftentimes inside they have things like, for example, meet the artist tickets or free yeah. concert tickets. Or for like AKB, for example, you can get a ticket and it'll, you get to be to shake one of the person's hand. If you so, if you buy 10, 10 CDs, you get ten shake the hand tickets. <laughs> Well, you get ten chances to. Ten chances are yeah, ten <laughs> chances yeah. <laughs> so you know, so um, when you know, so you made the message. Is your message like, let's say, the team that makes this kind of stuff? So it can't be just you because I'm sure they don't trust that you know Japan, you know what Japan likes that much, right? Is your kind of team mixed with Japanese people and foreign people, or? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of times I defer to my Japanese staff. Um, I have a team around me, but I can kind of explain things in a strategic way, and then I usually leave them. Um, kind of to decide the actual wording in Japanese, like the copy. So okay, like, this yeah. is what the client's saying. This is what we want to convey. How how do you say that best in Japanese? Okay, that that makes sense. Um, so, so you guys do you know one really popular thing in Japan marketing? I think is like get a famous person, get a press conference, get that famous person, use a comedian to hold the item, and then that's your press conference. You know? Yeah. Uh, so did you guys do something like that, or how did you handle the press conference? Um, basically, it was a our goal was to get global or not global national awareness um, for Spotify because unlike in the States, not so many people knew about it. Things like Line Music, um, Google Play Music, and Apple Music had already launched the previous year in 2015. So Spotify was a bit of a latecomer to the market. Um, so we had to get the name out there amongst all the clutter of, of existing streaming services. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we wanted to do was get everyone the Spotify on everyone's mind by getting it in the publications with the biggest reach. So that's our newspapers, um, TV, and everything like that. Um, so it was very much not a consumer-oriented pitch. It was much more of a, a business-slash-news angle. Spotify's finally coming to Japan. Like I said, so your kind of goal would, in my, if I was, you know, trying to 
guess at what your job would be. So your job is to make sure it gets in every newspaper, every TV possible, right? Yep. So was using a famous person not an option for that? Um, we could have, but that those kind of stories tend to get picked up by a different set of media and not necessarily the ones that have the highest trust. So that's something like, you know, your weekly tabloids, uh, online stuff. And when you do that, a lot of times the coverage is less about the product itself, but much more so about the celebrity. Okay, so you had like, so what did you do to deal with that? Did you have some kind of like the CEO or something talk or what exactly? Yeah, so we had Daniel Eck over. Um, so he kind of, you know, introduced the local team and then the local team did their presentation. And then he also introduced a new guy that they brought on board from Amazon who will be taking over the Japan office from here on out. Um, so by having him there, I think that that really increased the allure of the press conference. So what was your kind of task? Were you at the press conference? Did you to hang out? I'm sure it was kind of a, after it was over, it's a nice feeling, but you know, um, it was I like, I wouldn't describe it as hanging out. I would describe it more as I hope my heart doesn't explode. <laughs> Caffeine, stress, and not sleeping for three days. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> All right. So if if I if someone out there also wants to not sleep and you know almost you know have a heart attack from coffee, what advice would you give someone out there that is you know let's say they've been in Japan for three or four years or Japanese is pretty good they got it let's say I don't know N two level ish I don't think the test is important but let's say they're around that level what kind of what's a, what's a good way for them to kind of get into that field? Um. So basically, there's two things. Uh, I lucked into my job, but also you have to make your own luck. So what what I mean by that is you have to have the skill set for when the chance when you have your chance at bat. If you can't hit the ball, um, then there's no chance. There's no reason to even like get your your name out there. Um, so you know, develop a, a skill set that is highly wanted. So for me, like I had a background in research, and, and I also had worked with a lot of journalists um, as part of my studies at uh, Sophia looking at, you know, what are some issues with deviant kind of youths? Why are people neglecting the salary man track of lifestyle? Why are they instead opting to be like part-timers at 7-Eleven, um, juxtaposed to their fathers who basically were slaves to their company? Mm-hmm. So I was looking at all, all sorts of things like that. So, you know, I had that, I had my finger on the pulse of Japan and I had research skills. And, and so even though I had never done PR before, I had, you know, I had the understanding that allowed me to pick it up quickly. And then also, you know, I had a lot of marketing skills, for example, from doing SEO work and everything when I was working on that. Yeah, so you're saying, you know, to get, be ready when you have a chance. Exactly. Um, and then the other thing is just network. Um, so a lot of, like I said earlier, a lot of the jobs outside of the IT slash finance industry um, don't come up on Gaijin Pot. They don't come up on like Tokyo Notice Board or anything like that. So you're not going to find those jobs out in the open. Um, They're usually reserved for connections. And a lot of times, even if the position doesn't exist, they might create it for you if you can bring enough value. Yeah. So let's get a little bit, um, you know, some people say networking. Yeah, networks is important. Yeah, I got to do networking. So give me a, a stone example, a stone, not a stone example. I don't know what that means, but a good example of how you would go about networking if, if you really want to do it in, you know, for this field. Um, well, I'd probably start by going to this several networking events around Tokyo. Um, they're run by a lot of people who are pretty high up or well-connected in the business world. So some, one of them might be business in Japan. That's a monthly thing at um, 
the Ana Intercontinental Hotel in Akasaka. There used to be an event that I would run at Pink Cow called um, Pink Cow Connections, where we'd have three speakers come and talk about some business stuff. But um, you know, everyone kind of has a few beers, and it's a good place to meet people uh, in a very kind of relaxed environment. Um, there's other things like Sales Circle. There's all sorts of these little pockets of uh, gaijin business networking all over Japan all over Tokyo at least. I, I don't know about the other cities, but at least in Tokyo, there's all sorts of people. Um, so step one, move to Tokyo if you're trying to get out <laughs> You heard it here first. English teaching. <laughs> there you go. So um, yeah, yeah, I think you shared a lot of cool stuff. I mean, you know, it sounds like an interesting thing and a fun, it's, it sounds like fun. Is it, a, is, it, is it a fun job? That's what we're all about here. Is it fun? It's, I, I love the industry. Um, I think that, you know, because we're a super domestic company, uh, there, there are definitely some times I do get frustrated with the fact that, you know, Japanese office politics, um, like, for example, the fact that, that we, we still are on all on landlines and we have no Wi-Fi in the company because, you know, someone might connect to the Wi-Fi. Yeah, I, I just sent Donnie a fax for this interview. Yeah, and that, that's another thing. It's like, well, why are we still using faxes? Well, <laughs> That that's kind of par for the course for Japan, so that's more of a systemic <laughs> thing. But it's it's you know it's things like that. Um, yeah, that makes why, sense. Why do I need to get the CEO's approval to use a Google Doc? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that sounds like it might be tough. Um, so, Donnie, where can other people find you on the internet? If they want to learn more about you. I know you have a blog. I know you have a Twitter, and I will link to all that stuff. But do you have anything? You know, what where can someone? What's one place you want to send somebody to check more about you? Um, any, you know, any of those channels, I have a Facebook fan page. I have a Instagram account. I have a Twitter account and then you can also check out my stuff on my blog. But basically, you know, um, I don't want, ever want to be one of those social media guys who his entire social media spiel is talking about social media. So I've kind of taken up one of my pet projects of uh, inbound tourism and really pushed that as my uh, content. So if you're interested in Japan or want to see some really cool kind of off the beaten path hidden stuff, definitely check out anything you see, anything on any of my channels, really. Um, that, I kind of try to vary my content so each of them is unique. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, just that's, that's a, you know, it's not just like if you follow his Twitter, it's not going to be just an Instagram picture like some people do. And it's like, what are you doing, you know? Yeah, so I try to share, like, you know, a, a little bit of, you know, culture in Japan, but also a lot of cool off the beaten path stuff that you know, like you might not ever find. So there, there are a lot of things that I, I never knew about before I started doing this that are, have been really close by that have blown my mind. Something like, for example, Kawagoe, which is only 50 minutes north of Tokyo, but has the only ex- remaining parts of the old uh, Edo Castle, for example. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, so I'd like to end with a kind of look to the future. What are your future plans? Where do you see yourself in five, ten years? It's not an interview, so you know you don't have to take it that seriously. But where do you see yourself in five years? You know, and this is something I'll try to answer this in a way that someone can actually take value from. Being in a Japanese company is great. I think it's, a, it's something that any person who is really set on living in Japan long term should experience. But in terms of promotions and career path, you're quite limited. Management is never going to put you in a high executive position just be, um, because you know they'll they'll treat um, the Japanese more favorably than your, you. And there's also you know things that, the risks of you might go home, um, you, you know you might change jobs. Whereas the, the local guys they'll stick with uh, usually a job for life. That system's also changing lately. Yeah. Um, you know, so what this means is a bit of a glass ceiling for you in the domestic companies. Also, mm-hmm. um, a lot of headhunters have said that if you're in a Japanese company past five years, what that means is that basically you're now the token gaijin who can only exist in that 
that environment. Um, so basically, you bring value to a Japanese company, but you can't play in the Gaishke foreign companies um, just because you know you, you have your own little pocket in your little Japanese company, but you can't handle anything outside of that. Yeah. Um, and even if that's not true, that's basically the perception. So basically, I think in the future, um, I'm looking to get more into inbound tourism. I kind of really do want to work on some sort of uh, project, especially coming up towards the Olympics, because I think that there's going to be a ton of money available. So you know, if you're looking to do something to um, in the next few years, uh, I don't know if you have the money to start like a small hostel or anything, but th- those will be really big cash cows in the next few years. So um, looking to get into inbound tourism, be that working with the government, working with um, you know something like Odigo or something. Yeah, yeah. That's, that sounds that sounds good to me. So uh, yeah, Danita, I gotta say thanks for coming on here. You know, I, you kind of uh, I was interested in your career and stuff, so that's really why I had you on. But I think a lot of other people can find value too. And are probably jealous of what you're doing and will hopefully follow in your footsteps and find a job in marketing like in a Japanese company one day. Yeah, I mean, if you have any questions about marketing or working in a Japanese company, uh, feel free to hit me up on any of my social channels. Um, don't be afraid by all the stuff I'm putting about about overwork and people dying in Japan from working too much. I'm basically on a bit of a crusade right now to uh, make the Japanese uh working world understand the importance of rest and leisure and how being a more rested worker makes you a better worker and a more efficient worker. There's no sense in coming to work as a zombie and just, you know, going through the motions when you could go home, get a good night rest and come back with some really good ideas. Uh, so don't let that scare you away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that won't be you. You know, it happened to other people, but it won't happen to you. <laughs> All right, Danny, thanks for hanging out today. And I will, I'll see you down the road, I'm sure. Let's talk, I'll yeah, be sure, sure to keep in contact with you. Thanks for having me on, man. Have a good one. You too. Thanks for listening to the ALT Insider Podcast. For more info on how you can have more fun working in Japan, visit altinsider.com. See you next time.